Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 65th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Peter Malouk. Peter is the president of Creative Planning, one of the largest independent RAs in the country with nearly $35 billion in assets under management for more than 20,000 clients spanning 12 states and 21 office locations. What's unique about Peter, though, is that he's been able to grow the firm from under $100 million to nearly $35 billion in AUM in just 15 years and without relying on mergers and acquisitions, instead building an organic growth machine through a combination of strategic partnerships and trying to build a one-stop shop with enough size and scale to deliver the kind of comprehensive value that really makes clients refer. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Peter's firm includes not only financial planning and investment management services, but also divisions for tax preparation, estate planning, and trust services stemming from his own early days as an estate planning attorney before becoming an advisor. Why Peter felt it was necessary to expand and deepen the services of the firm to provide real value to clients, and why even at $35 billion in AUM, Peter still views his firm as a small boutique in the marketplace, even as the size of the firm is allowing them to attract more and more affluent, ultra-high net worth clientele. We also talk about the broader trends in the advisory industry, how the consumer marketplace is splitting into pursuing either the highest value or the lowest cost, and why that's a threat to most advisors in between. Why both wirehouses and even the retail divisions of RA custodians are simultaneously moving away from selling products and into financial planning advice, and the competitive threats that advisory firm owners are going to have to navigate in the coming years. And be certain to listen to the end, where Peter shares why he personally still spends a whopping 70% of his time every week sitting in front of prospects and clients, and his philosophy for minimizing layers of management in order to keep the firm efficient, even as they approach 500 employees. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Peter Malouk. Welcome, Peter Malouk, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, thanks, Michael. Good to be with you. I'm I'm excited about this episode because you guys are truly, I, I think, one of the, the the largest advisory firm growth machines I've I've ever seen in the industry. I know you you got kind of started in the current iteration of the firm barely 15 years ago. You guys were, and correct me if I'm wrong, something like $30 million in 2004. You're now over $30 billion, closing in on $35 billion in barely 15 years. And unlike, I know, a, a number of other firms that have grown to that size, you have you have not done it with a long list of acquisitions that bulked up the firm. It's just like actual organic growth strategies, one after another, to accumulate a rather large number of clients and, and $35 billion on, under management. So I'm I'm excited just to hear that story and what it's like to have that kind of growth trajectory. Well, I mean, it's it has been an incredible journey and every year has been the same. It's a general range, same percentage, but obviously the last few years having 35 to 55% growth on 8 billion or 18 billion is, is a totally different story than having it on 50 million or 300 million. So it's, it's reached long ago, it reached the surreal levels. 
but it's been a it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great journey. You know, it's it's a theme I talk about a lot for well, I guess merely large firms, you know, like the ones that have two or three billion dollars that we call large in the independent space, even though they're one tenth of your size. You know, the, the challenge that, I, that comes up for so many firms, I call it the tyranny of the denominator. It's it's that phenomenon that if you want to maintain a growth rate, the rate gets really hard to sustain as the firm gets bigger. You know, like when a when a solo advisor is out there doing their own thing and they've got even a hundred million dollars under management, and you want to get ten percent organic growth, it's like okay, I need I need ten clients, and if my average client's a million dollars, like I got to go get a, a client every month. It's like okay, I, I can I think I can do that, but then. You start growing, and suddenly at, at five hundred million dollars, if you want to sustain the same growth rate, it's it's now it's five hundred million dollars. You need fifty million dollars of growth, which means if you're working with the same million dollar clients, you don't need one a month. Now you need one a week, and the pace starts to pick up. And by the time you're two or three billion dollars, if you want to sustain that same space pace, now all of a sudden you need a millionaire a day every business day of the year to maintain the same same kind of ten percent growth rate, and so. Virtually all advisory firms, it seems, start to slow on their growth rates as the firm gets bigger, as the denominator gets bigger, except you guys who who seem to have figured out how to how to sustain that rate even as the the denominator gets so incredibly large. Well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of different things I think attribute that. I think so number one, I think some people they get to a couple hundred million and they go, you know what, I like this is what I want. And I you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And so you have folks that they, they build a, a practice, they, they have a circle of influence, they create something of value, and they bring in their 100, 200, 300 clients, and they have a small team, and, and there is nothing wrong with that. And I think that there's a very big group that's there. Now, when you're, you're talking, you're, you're specifically more talking about the $1 billion, $2 billion firms. Those are more enterprises. And I think that the things that really impact things there, are so, sometimes people just go, you know what, I don't have it in me to do, you know, to, to do everything else. I think the other big thing is the economics really dramatically change from a couple billion to 10 billion. The firm is more profitable, not just on a percentage basis, but on a dollar basis at 2 billion than it is at 10 if you're doing it right. And a lot of people are going, well, why am I taking all this liability and I'm going to stress myself out? I'm going to do all this stuff. And for God knows how many more years, I'm going to make less money because of the infrastructure I need technology-wise and compliance-wise, everything else to, to do that. And so I think a lot of people, I probably usually subconsciously more than consciously go, well, screw that. That's not really, that's not super appealing to me. But I think the biggest thing is what gets you from one level to the other, it's different. And so sometimes someone goes, oh, I got to hundred million, I'm, I'm, I'm brilliant. And then they get to 500 million, I, you know, I, I'm amazing. And then they get to a billion and, and then all of a sudden things stall out because to go from that level to another level it's a different ballgame altogether. It requires different skill set, different approach. I think that's really been masked in the industry in the last five to 10 years. I think you see a lot of $2 billion firms or $4 billion firms, and not because anybody did anything, but because the market went way, 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 way up, making everybody look smart. And you know, I think it'll be interesting when we have a prolonged bear market, what this industry really looks like on the other side of that. Yeah, it is an interesting phenomenon to me that there is an aspect of of business management, like of true business management that, frankly, we don't really teach and train in the advisory industry, even even at larger firms. Like when we, you know, when you go to conferences, 
either there are technical sessions that teach you planning skills, which are, are great to know to serve clients, but don't literally help you run the business. Or we have, quote, practice management conferences and sessions, but even the practice management sessions until very recently were, were mostly about how to make yourself more efficient and productive, which is, which is great in a world where we're all solo advisors trying to be productive with our client bases, but not so helpful for the subset of us that really want to build like scalable businesses that, that grow not just beyond ourselves even, but you know, really grow into large and lasting enterprises that it's a whole different skill set. It's a whole different set of issues. You start caring a whole lot more about you know, really establishing culture and a pipeline of talent and, and how you systematically develop your people in, in a way that just doesn't exist in the overwhelming majority of advisory firms, but ends up being this big gap for knowing what the heck you're supposed to do if you're actually one of the firms that gets large enough to go there. Yeah. You know, it's the conferences. I've, I've never been a fan of conferences because what I, I found when I'm listening to any of those things, usually the speaker, you know, we're young enough industry that the speaker usually has an agenda. And usually the person talking about what it's like to go from one size firm to another is usually buying firms and telling you why, you know, you should just throw in the towel and succumb and, you know, use their processes and, and so on. So you, you really rarely see somebody who's got a large firm that can really tell you how to grow it because there's not that many people that have done it. I mean, there's some people that can talk about how to acquire a lot of firms and there are folks that are selling systems to make firms more efficient, but it's not like you go to a conference and there's a whole bunch of speakers running $10 billion firms saying these are the 10 steps to, to get there. Yeah. So, all right, that's what I got to ask. So what, what are the, what are the 10 <laughs> steps for, for getting there? I mean, cause you've, you've done this journey from, from literally like 30 million to 30 plus billion from your perspective, what, what are the, like, what are the growth stages? What are the changes and inflection points that start cropping up that change the nature of the business and, and how it runs and forces you to reinvent yourself? Well, I think that there's not a tremendous amount of respect for the end client in this industry. So I think that, like most people think, the differences between firms are, are marketing. And I think early on, I was not really, I would never have considered myself somebody who could sell anything to anybody. I was an estate attorney. And I really just wanted to have a firm that, that did a lot of different things for clients. So I was really driven by delivering value. And I was doing that, you know, in 2004, 2005, when the industry was, you know, really, it had been around since the 80s, but, you know, a big firm was a firm that managed 300 or $500 million. I think you could get on the top 100 list in size with 500 million back then. And, and so it was a really in the infant stages. And you know, when I look back at that, I, I just basically said, I want a firm that delivers all this value to a client. Now, what's happened in the marketplace is that obviously I have no control over and it's just been good fortune is the market over the last 13, 14 years has dramatically moved towards extreme value or low, extremely low cost. And everybody else is getting crushed, right? So we happen to be delivering a tremendous amount of value. And then in the last five years or so, a lot of people started moving from broker to independent and from smaller firms to bigger firms. And we happened to be an independent that was bigger. So we did a lot of things right a little earlier than a lot of folks. And we found ourselves on the right side of, you know, these major forces, the move to value, the, the move to 
passive and a lot of our portfolios have a lot of passive components. The move to larger RIAs, the move from broker to independent. And so you combine just the perfect storm with what we had put together at the beginning, and that's attracted a lot of a lot of clients to creative. So I love this. I, I love the way that you frame this of, of the market is moving towards either high value or, or low cost, right? Like if I just want the simple low cost thing, I just go get the cheapest version of it available, you know, straightforward commoditized products, or you go towards the high value end and says, I'll absolutely willing to pay more, but if I'm going to pay more, I darn well better get more. Now, I, I feel like in a lot of businesses and particularly in our advisory industry, and I guess professional services in general, I feel like the 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 label of high value, at least at least to me, like I think of boutique. I think of like small boutique where you, the high value firms are small, nimble. They are able to go really deep in their services with clients because they they don't take on a lot of them or too many of them. And and I feel like there's there's long been this framing that highest value tends to come with smaller size boutique, more customized. So how do I reconcile that with you guys are doing high value parentheses and you also happen to be one of the largest <laughs> firms in the independent space? So like you are, you are the opposite of staying small and boutique. I mean, we're all kind of tiny compared to wirehouses with $2 trillion. But in the independent space, like I, I feel like most people would say, well, yeah, your choice is you go high value in boutique or you build something big like Peter did. Well, I mean, it's it's the high value to me doesn't mean higher price. So to me, we're we're priced where the market is. And I think our all in costs are lower than the market and we're doing a lot more. And so that's what I mean by value, not that we're charging a premium and justifying it. We're when people are going to talk to four or five advisors, they're going to say, you know, creative is going to give me more. And their fees are the same or lower. I think that's where we normally wind up. Now, when I started, it was me and just a couple people. And we were a, a boutique firm. And then it was, we were 500 million. It might have been me and nine or 10 people. And a couple billion, it was just maybe 15, 20 of us. Now, like you said, compared to the brokerage houses, we're all small. I mean, we're a rounding error in the industry. You're managing almost 35 billion. Might sound big in the independent world. But, you know, J.P. Morgan, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, Schwab, TD, Fidel, these are all firms that start with a T, like trillion, two trillion, three trillion. So, you know, creative's market share is something like 0.002. And we have hundreds of employees, not thousands of employees. You know, so I, to me, we are a boutique firm. And I think we're well in that space. I don't think you can really leave that category, even at 100 billion. I don't think you would leave that category because you're still really small in the grand scheme of things, but it's just delivering something better for the price than somebody else. Look, if somebody wants to pay somebody 30 basis points to be told which of their own company's mutual funds to buy, they can go to Vanguard, right? There's that super low cost solution. If you're going to be charging 0 0.8, 0.9, 1%, you better be doing something more than buying 10 funds. And so I think that's, we've been doing that all the way since 04 before anyone needed to do it. And I think that that's, really, really helped. And I, I really do think, I, I feel like I'm running a very small company every day. I don't feel like I'm running a big company at all. So can you tell us just a little bit then about the the company? Like, How do you describe creative planning as it exists today? Like, what, What's the business and, and what do you do and who do you do it for? I, I think that the real 
sets us apart is the the people here, the energy in in the firm, the talent in the firm. You know, one of the things I'm proudest to hear is somebody will say, you know, where I was, I was one of the very top people and here I'm just average. And to me, that's a tremendous compliment to what we're really trying to do here, which is, you know, you go to a hospital, it'd be great. It's great if they have the best equipment and it's great if they have the best facility and and the best processes, but you also want the best doctors and nurses. So the commitment to talent here, I think everyone knows there's a big commitment to talent here and you can feel that energy here. And I think our clients can feel that they're dealing with somebody that might be operating at a, be able to deliver more to them than they got somewhere else. From an offering standpoint, I think our typical client is saying, you know what, I'm getting more from creative planning than I got before. And I think it's reflected in the massive amount of referrals we get from our clients. I mean, the most of our growth doesn't come from any of the programs or anything else. It comes from just clients adding money and referring friends. And that's, that's been the real key for us as we've grown throughout the country. And I, speaking of being a boutique, you know, I was in Orange County yesterday visiting uh, a prospective client and our team out there. And, you know, I'm sitting in that office and it's like Kansas City was, you know, 10 years ago. It's just five people, but you can feel these are the right people. This is the right place. You know, they're at four or 500 million in assets and you, it wouldn't surprise me if by themselves, you know, they're five or $10 billion in, in five years. And I think that I could go to a lot of different parts of the country and feel that. I think when I go from one office to another, it's not just our technology that's the same or the support or the specialists that are the same. It's the, it's the energy and the feeling that's the same to me wherever I go. Can you help me size the firm a little overall of like, what typical clients look like. So at $35 billion in our management, how many, like how many clients is that? Or how many households is that, that you guys work with? So the, I, I think there's over 20,000 clients. We, we, we would divide our, our client base into three groups. So the largest group is the multimillionaire next door, we call them. And that, that group is a massive amount of our clients. We have about 5 billion or so in our ultra affluent practice. These are people that have tens of millions or hundreds of millions. This week, a client signed on with over 500 million. We had a prospective client yesterday with over 400 million. So the ultra fluent practice is maybe four or five billion, I think closer to five billion. And is, that's probably the fastest growing in terms of percentage. And then we have an emerging wealth practice that's new to our firm. It started about 18 months ago. And it's for folks that have under 500,000. We used to just accommodate family and friends of clients. And now we've made a concerted effort to really find a way to reach that group and help them grow and become part of the that millionaire, multimillionaire next door group. So that emerging wealth group is extremely high energy, new, newer group. And they, they maybe have 600, 700 million under management in that group. So I'm, I'm kind of doing the rough math overall. Almost thirty-five billion under management, about twenty thousand clients. So, you know, I get a, I get an average household of about one point seven or one point eight million dollars, which which fits right in with that, you know, that multimillionaire next door type. And and I know you guys are based in Leewood, Kansas, outside of Kansas City. So, one point seven million dollars goes goes quite far there, I would think, compared to at least some other cities. I'm in the D.C. area that. One point seven doesn't go quite as far here. <laughs> right, you're right, and I. But I mean, in Kansas City, even in the Midwest, maybe fifteen twenty percent of our clients are in Kansas and Missouri and the surrounding states. Eighty ninety percent of our clients are all over the country. So we've got, you know, we have advisors all over the country and and offices and 
20 different places. And like you said, you're in DC, we have three or four advisors in that area too. So we're, we're committed to being face-to-face that client wherever they are and having someone local to them. You're not a fan of the kind of the rise of all the distance-based planning. Let's do it virtually with GoToMeeting from centralized locations. You know, I, I think that is interesting because when I hear people talk about this, they go, well, this works and this works and this doesn't work. And really, I think a lot of things work. So I look at you know the mutual fund store, which Adam Bold from Kansas City started. I've never met him. But he basically started it with, with radio and it worked, right? And now they're owned by financial engines and financial engines is really ingrained in the 401k community. So it naturally complements each other and it seems to be working. And you have firms like Fisher that are more direct marketing and that's that's working. And you have firms that buy firms and that's working. So I don't really buy into one, one thing works and one doesn't. I think that the, hey, I'm going to mail you an iPad and you can just check in with me and that works for some people. That doesn't, I can just tell you that that doesn't work for my mom and dad. It doesn't work for my aunts and uncles. It doesn't even work for my brothers who are in their, you know, forties. And so, you know, it's, it's just, it depends what you're trying to do. And I don't think if you're trying to be really accommodating that that's the way to do it, but that could be irrelevant three years from now, everything could change. I think that's one of the industry interesting things about the industry is what, what works today isn't necessarily going to work tomorrow. So you've got to be flexible, dynamic, willing to change, willing to throw away everything that worked before because it might not work going forward. So you're serving 20,000 clients. So like how many, how many advisors does that take to actually support that many clients? Well, you know, as a firm, we have maybe 500, 600 people that do all sorts of things, CPAs, attorneys, CFPs, all sorts of different people that do other things that trade and so on. So when you get down to our professional, the client ratio, it's, it's actually very low. It's not really maintaining those clients. That's the deal. It's, it's bringing on new ones efficiently that I have found is what really puts a strain on an organization. And so, you know, when you're trying to put something together and it's already moving, that's hard. And that's basically what we're going through. What we're going through now is, you know, we're, we're growing faster this year than, in any previous year. And, and we're starting to look at all our processes and saying, I'm, maybe, maybe these things aren't going to work the way we did them before, the way we traded before, the way we did client service before. Maybe we have to find another way to do it that will accommodate where we're, where we're heading. Okay. And I felt that in firms pretty much across the board that, that because it's so much more work intensive to onboard a client and, and go through that initial year or two of financial planning process was as well as just the establishing the relationship if you're doing investment management transitioning the portfolio if you're implementing some other product going through the implementation process that just there's a there's a bottleneck on the upfront work it gets easier to maintain and also you seem to systematize for all the ongoing client service and support work and so most firms seem to the struggle with the bottleneck around what happens if you try to take on too many clients at once almost regardless of how many existing ones you have. Certainly, the more you have to service, the harder it gets on top. But the constraint is the the you know the speed that they're flowing in much more so than just the total number that you're servicing until you hit some absolute capacity wall at the higher end. That's right. And, and I think that you know, if you look at the industry, I think the growth rate is very flat. When you neutralize asset growth, I can't remember who gave me the, the paper on it, but it looks like you know the average firm is really growing at just a couple percent or 
even declining as the client base ages. And yeah. so I think that really the inflation of the assets has really masked a lot of what's really happening in the industry as it's gotten more and more competitive. And so is that is that the dynamic you see from your end as to what's playing out? We're, we're just flat out getting more competitive? Oh, I think it's absolutely more competitive. So if you, in, in 2007, 2008, when I was bringing on clients, I'd see prospective clients in my office and they were in mutual funds and I would kind of go through their Janus paperwork and their American funds. And I would walk through like what we were going to do. That all kind of went away maybe seven, eight years ago. And then people came in with brokerage statements. And so they'd come in, they were at Morgan Stanley or UBS or whatever. And we'd talk about the differences and move them over. Well, I'd say half the time now somebody comes in, they're an independent firm. That was unheard of, you know, five or 10 years ago. So you're starting to see that to me, that a lot of people didn't even know what a financial advisor was. And they started to hire advisors. And then they didn't know the difference between brokers and independents. And they started to get educated and a lot of people moved over to independence. Well, that stuff is over, right? So now, now you don't have this artificial inflow of people just discovering what an advisor is or discovering what a fiduciary is. And no one, I think, is paying attention to that because that all happened about five years ago and all the market's done is go straight up and everyone wakes up and they're managing 10% more assets than they did the year before. But I think if you really look at what the real story is in the background, it's, hey, you know, if you want a client, you're going to take them from somebody else now you're going to have to deliver more value than somebody else. That's, I think, the next story in this industry. Yeah, I know we felt it for for our firm as well. We're, we're based in the, in the D.C. area. And I mean, when I think back to what the competitive environment was like 10 or 15 years ago, like the, the average approach talk for us with a, with a prospect was like us, some – local product-based broker from a handful of independent broker-dealers that have a big presence in our area, and then like an insurance agent who was their brother-in-law who was you know, <laughs> try, trying to do business with them. And, and like basically, as long as they weren't too concerned about it being awkward at Christmas, if they didn't do business with the brother-in-law, we, we won the business. You know, our, our close rates were phenomenally high back then. And now I look at our typical approach talk today when, you know, frankly, we don't, we don't do things that much differently. Like we, we get referrals from existing clients and, you know, we've established some presence in the community. So some people got in touch with us that way. But I look at the typical approach today and it's us and two to three other RIAs in the area, all of whom I know, all of whom I have a lot of respect for. Like they have done their homework mm-hmm. and they found a couple of good firms. So, you know, we'll talk about some of the nuanced differences, uh, you know, we're a little more tactical. They're a little more passive. We do a little bit more retirement and tax planning. They're a little bit more focused on small business owners. Like we try to find some places to make our distinctions, but but the competitive discussions are just completely different than they were. And so we still win our fair share of business now, but now we just kind of win our fair share. In the, in the past, when we came to the table with this comprehensive advisory offering against most of the rest of the industry still selling a lot of products. It, you, like we closed almost all the yeah, business. Yeah, it was just and, so easy. It was crazy. I mean, you were saving people from getting screwed over and you were saving them fees at the same time. It was it's just a whole new world and it is yep. today, Yeah, which is, which is a good thing for the end client. So, so how, did, like, how does a firm like yours try to, try to maintain its competitive posture? Like how do you, how do you differentiate yourselves in – in that environment? Is it just we're, 
we're bigger, we have more resources? Is it something different about how you frame the value of planning? Like, how do you make a firm like creative planning stand out in in that this kind of new competitive environment that we're talking about? I mean, part of it is, you know, it obviously wasn't the case even a year ago, but as we've, you know, grown from 18 or whatever, 24 to, to 35 billion, yeah, there is there is comfort that comes from size. I mean, when people are looking at advisors, if they're going to move from the worlds of the Goldman's and the UBS's and those places, they know, I mean, they're, they're starting to get educated on the difference between a fiduciary and a broker and proprietary funds versus a firm that doesn't have their own proprietary funds and avoiding commissions and all of that. But they also want to feel safe. You know, I mean, they want to feel like, hey, I'm in a place where other people are in a place. You know, if I'm building a, a porch and some, I'm interviewing three people and one guy goes, by the way, I built your neighbor's porch and that person's porch and that person's porch. You know, that person has my attention, right? And so right. as you start to emerge, and there are a few firms, we're not the only one, that you start to emerge in the larger space, we are definitely able to gain the confidence of people. So, you know, there's this implied, implicit thing that's happening when I was meeting a client when we're at 30 million or 500 million or 2 billion, where the client ultimately is deciding, is creative planning better for me than me doing it myself and my other options, right? And part of that decision making is, is creative planning going to screw it up, right? And Or is yep. creative planning going to do a pretty good job? Well, you know, when you have tens of thousands of clients all over the country and you've been doing it for a long time and there's a lot of collective due diligence there. And so it's no difference than going to TripAdvisor. You know, when I was in, when I'm traveling in West Palm earlier in the week and I go to TripAdvisor and I click on, you know, one of the top restaurants in the area, I'm basically saying, you know, where, where has everyone else already done the due diligence? And that's it. That's my, that's the end of my due diligence, right? So I think there's some safety that we're starting with. You know, when somebody's interviewing five advisors, we're usually going to be in the top two or three just because they're going, look, thousands of people have already, chosen creative that they must be okay, you know, at least listen to them. So we're always at the table. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I've found it's, it's long been a kind of an interesting data point to me in the industry that the size of an advisory firm is, is almost perfectly correlated to the size of its, of its average clients and its largest clients. And, and basically the, the larger the firm, the larger its average clientele. There's, there's no question. And, and we've all, yeah, we've always had larger clients, but I will tell you that when we passed that twenty-five billion threshold, the attention from those clients just went up five tenfold. I mean, so I think that they want to be in a in a place where you know they know there's some collective due diligence taking place. Yeah. Well, and I I get it. Like if you're a if you're a five hundred millionaire, like it feels a little bit weird to go to a firm with a couple billion dollars under management. You're like, right. I'm going to be like 20% of your firm. Right. Right. Now I have to do a whole other level of due diligence about whether your firm is going to survive and thrive when I actually know you are that reliant on, on me. You know, on the one end, there's a subset of clients that probably like to be a really big fish in a small pond, but for, a lot of clients, uh, yeah, I think particularly as you get up to more affluent levels, you know, they 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 value some of the perceived just stability of a firm of size, and so the larger the firm gets, the more comfortable it gets to be a large client in that firm because you you actually know you're not dominating the size of the firm, and that that's actually kind of comforting. It's a 
like a safety in numbers herd mentality thing, I guess. That's right. I think that's what's going to be interesting about the independent world now is if you looked five years ago, a big firm was $5 billion. I mean, there were all kinds of articles about, wow, look at these five firms that are 10 firms that are all at $5 billion and how crazy is that? And boy, that has really changed. And I think the type of client looking is getting more sophisticated too. The, all this fiduciary stuff in the news and they want to see a bigger, a bigger firm usually. Well, and I, and I, I think you make an interesting point with it as well, that, that, you know, as, as much as clients look at you know, sort of the classic, what are the features and benefits? What's the value that I'm going to get for the, for the fee that I'm paying, you know, in, in a world where there are so many different advisory firms and it's hard to compare them. And, and there's always a little bit of uncertainty to the value proposition you're going to get and whether they're really going to deliver on what they say they're going to give. Yeah, there, there's some client aspect that basically just comes down to, am I going to regret if I pick working with this advisor? Like, what's the, what's the chance that I'm going to regret this decision? And, and like it or not, there is, I think, some perceived comfort of, well, when they have 20,000 other clients... I feel like the odds aren't as high that I'm going to regret this decision. Like if they were that bad, they probably wouldn't have 20,000 clients and $35 billion. Under yeah. I think, I think people underestimate that everyone assumes, oh, someone's looking for the best and I'm always trying to be the best. That's I get up every day and go, how can we be the best place for a client? But they're also, they're just going, I don't want to mess this up. I mean, people have all kinds of horror stories in their minds that are constantly reinforced at cocktail parties and Christmas parties and on, Fox Business and CNBC and American Greed and all these people losing their money and stealing their money. And people are horrified, you know, so they really want to just feel safe. I mean, that's the prerequisite. And it's really hard to make somebody feel safe when you're small. Now, fortunately for me, when we were small, there was no 0809 crisis. There was no Bernie Madoff. Nobody knew what you know any of this stuff was. So people didn't really care as much back then. I think it'd be very challenging today, you know, to be a smaller RIA and trying to gain the confidence of, of clients, which is why I think you see the massive, if you, the top under RIAs are collecting more than half of all of the new assets, even though there's thousands and thousands and thousands of RIAs. I think that's one of the big reasons. Yeah. The, some combination of the implicit trust that comes with, with size. And I'm sure there are more than a few advisors out there in smaller firms and, you know, small is relative, like that could be hundreds of millions or seven, several billion dollars under, under management who are probably hearing this and, and like is, is screaming at the podcast to say like, yeah, but I'm safe too. And I do the right things too. And like, you should see how many bad things I've seen that came out of large firms because the clients were just a number and, and not, and not respected as individuals. And I will do the individual work for them. And, and I think that's the case we often make as, you know, solo or small firms in, in a, in a world where there are multi-trillion dollar wirehouses, but you know there, there is just I think a fundamental consumer psychology aspect of you know part of what people fear is am I going to regret this decision and and right or wrong when you see lots of other people doing the same thing it makes you more comfortable that you're probably going to be okay with the decision. And, and even if you're not, and you ultimately don't like the service, you say, well, like, what the heck was I going to do? 20,000 20, other people <laughs> thought it was a good idea too, right? It's the whole, like, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you jump off too? You know, but the psych research basically says is, yeah, actually probably most <laughs> of us would if everybody else was doing I, it. Like we just, there's safety in the herd. And I would say that that safety is not to me really a hypothesis. I can tell you that, 
I've always taken every client extremely seriously and every investment we pick very seriously. But today, like if we're looking at an alternative investment, I mean, I am constantly thinking about what can go wrong. And we'll go through all this due diligence internally. And then like last private investment we did, we paid an outside firm, I was 50 or $70,000 to go do an on-site audit and analysis for us. I mean, because we have a lot to lose if we mess something up. You know what I mean? So there really is, I mean, we are, we've always been serious about compliance. We're more serious now. We've always been serious about due diligence on our investments, but you get even more serious now because you, you have this responsibility to all of these people. And if one thing goes wrong, if one investment goes wrong, that touches a decent amount of those accounts, the, the party's over. You know what I mean? Like no one's going to stick around. So the the level of due diligence that happens now on everything is you know, from how do we approach cybersecurity to how do we approach an investment to how do we approach technology and compliance. So a totally different mindset. You know, I'm waking up with a healthy dose of fear every day of how do I make sure we deliver for all these people. Yeah. Because now you've got a you've got an entire brand at stake. You know, the, the, the good news of a trusted brand is it builds a lot of momentum. The bad news is if you lose the brand trust, it's, it's really hard to get it back as an organization of size. That's right. Yeah. So when you, when you get back into this competitive landscape that you're talking about, so you, 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 you get some competitive edge now of just having the the sheer size and and scale and the the twenty thousand clients that that naturally creates some level of of trust and social proof with clients. Are there other things that you guys do about how you differentiate yourselves in this in this marketplace of how you explain financial planning and what you do that says here's why you should work with creative planning and not not all the other firms that the prospects probably talking to as well. Well, I'm not. I'm not big on how we make the sausages, you know, Michael, but I, w- I would just say that I'm always trying to figure out what can I give the client that is real value? So I'm never trying to figure out what's a better way to sell something or how do I persuade somebody to do something. Every bit of energy and time and money is spent into how do I get a better offering? How do I get better people? How do I put something in front of that existing client or prospective client? where I'm just assuming everybody's talking to another advisor all the time. And I want them to be like, you know what? This firm's proactively communicating with me. They're doing more for me than other folks. They're delivering on the investment side and I'm not going anywhere. And so for me, it's, it's all about how do I add value? How do I add value? How do I add value? What can I, what can I give the client that, that will continue to make them stay with us? Not because they like us, but because we're giving them more than they can get somewhere else. Well, and I know you guys have tried to go deeper on some of that by actually building out complementary business lines under the umbrella as well. So you mentioned earlier, like you've got you've got financial planners and CPAs and attorneys under the umbrella. So, like, are you guys now down to the point that you're doing tax returns for clients and wills for clients and that stuff as well, or are these all attorneys and CPAs who are who are still solely wearing the financial planner hat and advising, but you? we still refer out all the all the tax and accounting and legal work. Well, I'm an estate attorney as well, and so we've been doing we we were I was doing wills and trusts before I was managing investments and and doing financial planning. So from from day one, we've had that offering, and I, I would say over the years we've probably done over twenty thousand estate plans. My guess is we do four or five thousand tax returns every year. So no, we're very very committed to those spaces. I think that that's a, a very important element 
of wealth management. It's not buying 10 funds. It's being able to advise on a broader array of things. And so I've been committed to, to doing those sorts of things early on. And is that like a complimentary service that clients pay for separately? Like, here's our advisory fee if you want the planning advice and portfolio management. And then if you need tax returns, we do that here. It's at a favorable rate for clients, but we charge you separately. And if you need your estate plan, we'll draft that, but we charge it separately. Like, Are these sort of a la carte services available in a one-stop shop? Or do you actually try to build like the the one-stop bundled fee and put it all together? No, it's they're separate fees. And we, we don't want to replace the client's CPA or estate attorney if they're happy with them. And so if they've got a great relationship, that's fine. We're still going to advise them. If they want us to take it over, there there's a separate fee for us to for us to do. Okay. And were you ever tempted to roll it all into one, or was it just always the the goal and plan to to keep them separate? Well, I think from the estate planning side, it was not really it was not really tempting. It's just you know it can be very some of those some estate plans are very very simple. It's a will and some powers of attorney, and some are incredibly complex. And I think there wouldn't be really a fair way to do it. You know, if somebody's got more money, they pay a lower fee, but we have more liability if there's a trade error and so on. But with with law and tax, I mean, two people with the same net worth can have tax returns that take twenty times more than someone else's. You know, so it's there's really not an equitable way, I think, to deliver that in that way. But your but your goal for it is to say at least we. We can do it in house. We'll, I'm presuming, you know, offer you a reasonable price since I guess you, you know, your your tax and estate divisions don't exactly have a lot of marketing costs when they already get fed from a, a core of twenty thousand clients. So you just try to say like, well, we can do it more cost effectively, or just we can do it more integrated because when you work with our accountants and our attorneys, in addition to our financial planners, like we'll be able to handle more for you behind the scenes since we're all under one roof and working together. I don't think the client cares about anything of that. I think when the, when the client comes on, to the extent they value this at all, they go, I like that this firm understands all of these things, right? So when, when we're managing their money, we know how a foundation should be managed differently than a trust account and so on from a tax perspective. When they have a charitable reader trust, we know what that is. We know how it's taxed. We know how to invest the money in there. And I think they like that security of knowing if they want to move the, those things that we're capable of taking them over. And so... I think it's just, it's a, it's about competence, you know, showing a client you're committed to this. I'm not going to just sit down and buy 10 funds and run a retirement projection and act like I've done something amazing for you. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you more and I'm going to look at, should that IRA be converted and should it go straight to a charity and should we accelerate giving to your donor advice fund? But it's not coming from somebody that's just trying to wing it in all these areas. It's coming from specialists. And I think the client can feel that difference. And it's it's been a part of the success, I think. So when you kind of roll all of this together, like I'm I'm still just curious to understand like where where does this much growth come from at, at the end of the day? Like I, I get it, 20,000 20, clients is a heck of a base for potential referrals. So I feel like most of us so are always trying to get more referrals with varying degrees of success. I know you're you've been involved over the years in some of the custodian referral programs as well. You're on I think like virtually every top advisor ranking list that gets put out there, you know, Barron's and Financial Times and all of those. I know you guys are always at the at the top of those, so I'm sure that brings some visibility as well. But like from your perspective, I mean what 
what activities drive growth? I mean, what have you found at the end of the day that works or, or alternatively like what's popular, but you validated really doesn't work as a firm that's I'm sure tried a lot of growth strategies over the years. I think that the, ultimately that what the deal is, is that money moves to value. It just, it just does. So money, it might not move there right away, but over time, all the money will find its way to value. So I'm very focused on how do I create that value? Of course, you're right. Being on the top of CNBC and Barron's, of course, some people find us there, but we had to have clients to get, to get there, right? Right. And if we're on a custodial platform, we do well there. Well, why are we doing well there? There's hundreds of other firms on these platforms. You know, it's the value, you know, and the value is the, the proposition, what we're offering and the people that are delivering it. And I think that those are some of the bigger, bigger factors for us. Yeah, I guess I'm still just struggling that like, I mean, I feel like all of us say we give great value. Like I see the hard work I do every day. I give great value for my clients. They tell me all the time that they like me. They may not refer me to all other friends, but like feel like I'm giving good value. Client retention is good. Clients seem happy. I don't have $34.8 billion. <laughs> like what, what am I, what am I doing wrong here? What are you guys doing or conveying around your value that Others just can't seem to do that. We all try to give value for our clients. And for some reason, a whole lot more of them seem to show up at, at creative planning than anywhere else. You know, I, I think that some of it you've touched on. Like we, we also have a trust company. We also handle 401ks. We, we find a way to say yes to the client. Yes, we can help you. Yes, we can do that for you. And we can do it at a high level. So for example, there's a advisor in Kansas City and he basically redesigned his whole firm to look like creative. And he said, okay, I've got a, a lawyer and I've got a CPA and I've got whatever and I custody at the same place. But it's really just, it's kind of like creating a, a mirage. You know, it's just not the same thing. We have 80 people coming to work every day in our, in our tax and legal groups that are really committed to this space. They're not there for marketing reasons. And, you know, there's another firm that manages a few billion and we were doing a little better than them on a platform. So they added a, a couple planners so that they could also say in their marketing materials, we offer planning. Well, we have probably 200 planners. You know what I mean? So there's a difference between just saying what you think the market wants to hear so that you can sit in front of a client or a referral source and say, hey, we do these things or, or get on the radio and say, hey, we do these things. And it's another thing to be really, totally, completely committed to it. You know, how do I really? spend all of our internal you know, money and time on building this stuff out in a very big way. And I think that's the, that's a very big part of the difference is people get into a place and go, oh, I thought you did all these things and they find out it's not quite the same thing, you know? And I think that that's a big part of it. So it's not just, I mean, I guess, again, this is one of the, the advantages you get with, with size as you grow, just the, the fact that you get to say we offer tax services, not because you have, a tax dude or dudette that does some tax returns because you have dozens of them and, and you don't just help out with the state planning documents because you'll go to a client's estate planning meeting and work with their attorney or, or you have a relationship with an attorney who helps draft these things. You've got dozens of them. Yeah. And they, and they come work every day and that's all that they do. And so that client knows, you know, if God forbid I'm incapacitated or I die or my CPA retires, or I have a complicated tax question about buying a boat or a plane or moving to a different state, creative probably has somebody that can help me. And that's very different than 
I also do tax and law and you go buy a firm that does it or you throw in a couple people and, and say that you do it. I mean, clients aren't stupid. You know, they want to they want to have a real commitment to that space. And if if you fool them into coming over, you, you're basically renting the client because eventually they'll figure it out. Right. They're, they're eventually figure that that component out. So I guess part of your point to this would be even even for folks that are listening to this and, and saying like, yeah, that one-stop shop thing where we do all that different stuff sounds great. I want to do that as well, that you'd actually caution them. Like, don't do it unless you're really, really serious to scale it up because otherwise you may not get the value that you're hoping for. Yeah, there's a firm I think very highly of in St. Louis and I'm friends with the people there. And they said, we're just not doing those things. You know, we're not committed to it. We have relationships with CPAs and attorneys, you know, and I applaud them for that. They're not holding themselves out to their clients saying they're doing things they're not really committed to. And they're however many billion and they're all doing just fine. And they work with the outside advisors. There is a segment that's saying, okay, I think this is where the industry is going. So why don't I bring in one or two people and say, I'm doing all of these things. And I think that that just, it's not really a deliverable that's going to work, I think, in the, in the long run. So I know you're a, a firm that's been involved in the custodian referral programs as well. You know, all the major companies have them now. I think TDA has Advisor Direct and Schwab has Advisor Network and Fidelity has their their WASP program, Wealth Advisor Solutions, you know, where they they refer clients to RAs on their platform. They get some basis points revenue sharing because they made the referral and then you get to service the client and do your advice. Do you still view that as a core growth engine for the firm as well? Is that an area that you guys continue to be a fan of? Or what's your outlook for that space as someone that I know has been involved in it a lot more than others have over the years? Well, we're, we're definitely a fan of it. I mean, there's hundreds of firms on those on those platforms. I think that just the reality is the custodians have gone to offering some really substantive in-house solutions. So the marketplace has really changed in the last few few years. I mean, they all have or are getting their own online or robo solution or whatever you want to call it. They're all coming up with their own, you know, targeted portfolio with financial plan. I think they all have that with, with planning solutions. And some of them have even bought their own RIAs or created their own. So I think that space has really contracted in the last few years, but I mean, the custodians are, are great partners and there's still a place because I think that even while they have all of those things, when they have a client come in and it's very, and it's a complicated situation, they've empowered their consultants to say, Hey, okay, we've got a bunch of internal solutions, but you'd be better served with one of these, you know, 200 RIAs over here. And, you know, my job is to make sure that we're the number one RIA of all of those. You know, I want to be the one that's the delivering the most value. So, so when they do look over and go, Hey, we can't, we don't think we should be doing this in-house. We want to do it with a partner. We want to be the firm that's best positioned to do that. But I think that marketplace has just really changed changed a lot in the last few years. So does it, I mean, if I if I just continue to project those trends out and Schwab and Fidelity and TD Ameritrade all continue to go deeper with financial planning and hire more CFPs themselves and put them in branches and put them in centralized planning programs. And you know, all, all of those firms have some kind of program of that sort to varying degrees. Like when you look out five to 10 years, like are, are you worried about competition from custodians that are doing financial planning and competing with you directly while you're using their platforms? Well, I'm not worried about it, but I, I, I have no doubt that they're I mean, obviously, they're openly competing with us, and I think that's that's where the market's heading. 
And I think, frankly, the custodians have a lot of very, very, very smart people there. And I think they're probably frustrated that, hey, we're, we're sending money to some of these RIAs that, you know, they're probably frustrated with. You know, so I think the custodians not only are going to compete, I think they deliver value and I think they're formidable. Now, I think that the key there is I want creative to be delivering certain things they can't deliver. Like, I don't think tomorrow any of the custodians are going to start doing tax returns or practicing law or what, you know, so I think there's all kinds of things. And I don't think a, a trillion or two trillion dollars, you're going to be customizing everybody's portfolio either. So I think, and we also don't have the fiduciary rule and all of that. So I think there's a lot of things that even if they're going to compete, there's going to be plenty of room for the RIA. I think what's ominous for the RIA industry is there's not room for thousands and thousands of RIAs. I think you're going to see what happened with the brokerage world, the custodian world. You're going to have, I'm not one of those people that thinks it's going to be 10 RAs. I've heard some people say that, but I think it's going to be hundreds. And I don't know what there are now. There's probably 10,000, you know? So I, I think that's what's going to really change. I mean, I guess it basically just comes down to you can still differentiate from what $2 trillion firms are going to do because they have to do it in a certain size and scale that just limits their their customization, their depth, and certain services. But if you want to survive in that future, truly the question becomes like, how are you going to differentiate from what trillion dollar custodians are going to be offering? Exactly. I mean, like you know, most, most RAs are doing tactical ETFs or all one fund family mutual funds or, you know, or we're going to put you in a portfolio based on your age or risk tolerance. Well, I mean, my God, what, you know, how, why would somebody hire you to do that five years from now? You know, the marketplace is just really going to change, I think. And I think that the brokerage houses are going to come around and they're going to fight back hard. And, you know, if the fiduciary rule passes and really that will help the end client, but that will get rid of really the story that the average RA has versus the brokerage houses and the custodians are getting much more sophisticated about, hey, we've got all these assets and how do we, how do we take care of them in-house? I just think it's getting to be a much, much more competitive space. And now everyone has an advisor. I mean, when was the last time, Michael, that someone came in your office and you have the last 10 people you met? I mean, how many of them said, oh, I'm doing it myself? I mean, seven years ago, that was half the people. Yeah. You know, today they're all somewhere already. And so it's it's turning, it's going to be much more dog eat dog here in the, in the next decade, yeah. I think. Well, including even, you know, the the folks that we might have gotten years ago that were literally on a you know retail do-it-yourself online brokerage platform like Schwab or TD Ameritrade that would have said they were do-it-yourselfers. And now, like it or not, they have a financial consultant assigned to them from the local branch who may or may not have a CFP and be talking about the additional resources of their CFPs in the home office. And and even self-directed investors don't say and identify it as being as self-directed as they were before. I mean, I guess there's a subset who are, but they're so hardcore self-directed, they're never going to they're never going to be in my That's office right. anyway, so I'm not going to be talking to them. But the group in the middle that maybe, yeah, they were kind of self-directed, but they really would like some help. So they would show up in my office. Now, when they need a little help, they don't have to show up in my office because they've got any number of on-demand financial planning support services from large firms that are billing out to serve them because that's what they want. So you, you build it as a firm. That's exactly right. Yep. So how did you end out down this path of building this enormous RIA firm having started out as you said as as an estate planning attorney and can you can you 
take us back to what did, what did that look like in the in the beginning? What were you doing in estate planning practice, and how did you transition over to the the advisor side of the industry? Really, from ninety eight to four, I was hired to do planning for some places, and I was hired to do wills and trusts and give advice like that to other advisors' clients too. And so I would, for example, creative planning was one of my clients. I did financial planning and design portfolios for their clients. There were maybe a hundred advisors at brokerage houses and independent firms where I did wills and trusts for their clients as well. And I, I kind of did this for six or seven years. And finally a light bulb went off in my head that, hey, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. I mean, I'm being hired to plug it plug in for these folks so they could seem seamless. I also had a hard time, you know, watching I'd set up a charitable trust and a foundation, everything else, and recommend certain things that I'd come back and there'd be a variable annuity in there. You know, and so I really wanted to have a firm that was totally independent, didn't sell anything, didn't have any of its own proprietary funds. I wanted to be able to tailor each portfolio instead of use models. I wanted to be able to do legal and tax advice all in one place. And the owner of Creative Planning, who's a incredible at the time, said, look, you know, he had had one partner die young. He had had one become disabled young. And I think he decided he was going to retire young. And so he said, look, you can just take on creative planning. And it was, a, I already knew the clients. I was already taking care of them. And that became the place that we, we grew this from. But I was able to see the insides of, at the time, Wells Fargo, Wachovia, UBS, Merrill Lynch, Ameriprise, and a whole bunch of independent advisors too. And I saw what worked and what didn't and what was smoke and mirror, mirrors and what was real. And how could I maybe do something that I thought would work for the client? Now, in my wildest dreams, I didn't think we would ever get to 200 million, you know, yeah. like, or even, or even a hundred million. I, you know, it never occurred to me. My first person I hired was someone that was interning for an enterprise advisor that had moved to a different state and recommended her. And she was in college at the time. And I was like, gosh, I don't know if I can afford this, this person, but she seems really good and I'll give it a go. And I, she's the vice president today. But I think that there was zero expectation. I mean, if I had any idea about any of this, I would have done it seven years earlier and I would have certainly approached it differently, you know, as I earlier on. But it was really took a few years before I was like, wow, I, I think we're on to something here. And again, it was before the industry was really, you know, we were at the time we were doing the financial plans for free. Other people were charging for them and we were using ETFs when people had to explain what an ETF was. And so we were a little bit ahead of the curve on some of the basics that are all irrelevant now. They've all been completely commoditized, which is why we're doing you know more and more things today you know than we ever did before. We're delivering much more value today at a lower fee than when I started. Which is, I guess, a a form of fee compression, but not necessarily the bad version that some people at least seem to paint doomsday scenarios about in the industry. Just the recognition, like technology gets better. So we can execute more efficiently, so we can charge less for what we do and deliver more and still be profitable as a business. I think that's coming for sure. I think that you're going to see people's margins are going to get squeezed because you've got to deliver more. That's number one. Number two, the compliance and technology commitment is way more than anyone I think anticipated. And then number three, the fee is going to have to come down as well. Uh, and I think all of those are totally appropriate. I think, I think that's where the industry is heading. But I think capitalism has a way of making sure all these things turn out exactly the way they're supposed to turn out, you know? So so when did you come in to take over creative planning and 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 do this transition? 
2004. And so the firm was, how big was it at the time? You know, I started there in 98 with their clients and it was between 30 million and 90 million along, along that whole path. Okay. And again, and so now we're, was that a thousand X today from 30, 30 million to more than, than 30 billion. Yeah. When, so when you came in initially, like you take over this firm in, in 2004, you've got tens of millions of dollars. Like what was the, what was the vision at the time? Cause you said like, you never dreamed it was going to grow as big as it, as it has. Like what were you coming in with the vision of doing at the time? Do you remember? I really just thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to about 30 different appointments a week at different advisors offices. And I'm, you know, I was really young. I was maybe 33, 34. And I'm like, can I really do this? You know, this pace of driving to drive to UBS at eight 30 and drive to Ameriprise at 10 30 and drive to an independent advisor at 11 30. I liked the idea of doing my own thing. And I liked the idea of doing it a way I thought was right. And I thought I could make a living doing it. It was, it was that simple. I would love to tell a story about a vision and being super intentional about it and all of that. Definitely not the case. But the second I saw I was onto something, it, it was the case. And then I, be, I became very focused on, you know, how do I get to the next level all the time? I was looking, you know, hopefully a couple steps ahead saying, what do I have to do to, to get there? What do I have to do to get there? How much better do we have to be to get to that next phase and figuring out what we needed to do to compete? So, so tell me about that transition when, when you go from like, I think we can do things a certain way and I just don't want to drive from one advisor's office to another to, to keep doing these wills and trusts. You know, like you, you start doing it, it starts to work. And then you find you want to create a vision and, and, and be more intentional about it. Like, was there a, like a transitional moment? When, what, how does that shift happen? I mean, there are a couple of moments you look back on and that seemed super high risk at the time. There was one advisor that had referred some clients to me, his name's Todd Shepard. And I didn't know him that well, but I knew he was a high integrity person that was very smart. He was a CPA and a CFP. And he became the first person I think I, I hired to actually take care of clients besides me. I remember that being a very big moment. I hired a advisor, Jim Williams, who our co-chief investment officer today to help manage all of the money. And I didn't know him really that, that well when I hired him. I considered that a big moment. And then we hired a few wealth managers that were, you know, more expensive. They were incredibly, you know, very high performers where they were. And I just said, you know, I'm just going to basically take everything that's coming in this year and hire these folks and see how this goes, you know, but I, I, I was so scared about harming our reputation that, Part of it was fear and part of it was wanting to get to the next level. But I wanted to make sure I had people that if I was going to meet a client to talk to that client about becoming on, on creative, I wanted to hand that client to somebody that was very, very strong, you know, consultative, caring, compassionate, a certified financial planner or a lawyer or a CPA knew what they were doing. And so I kind of went over the top with those those folks that I hired. And I think that wound up being a really big moment because I realized, you know, that that's really the way to do it. I think firms that, that think that people are commodities and that they're interchangeable and it doesn't really matter. And the clients really focused on the end product. Absolutely do not get it. Absolutely do not get it. And so I think that for me was the really big, big transformation when I was going, you know, I could, 
just chill out right here and make a very, very good living. Or I can make no living and go hire these people. That was really a very big change. And that really started the beginning of what creative is today. Yeah, I I find for so many of us advisors, like the true transition moment when you go from a practice to a business is, is when you decide, like, I don't, I don't want to just be doing financial planning. I want to be hiring people who do financial planning, creating a business of financial planners and financial advice. And that involves all these scary transitions of, of hiring people, usually very expensive people, you know, selling, putting all the client relationships that you know personally at risk by having someone who's not you be in, in charge of that relationship. Yet at the same time, for anybody that really, really wants to grow a business, like you cannot possibly grow a sizable firm by having all the clients yourself. There's just not enough time. Like you, you, you will hit a capacity wall. But it's an incredibly difficult transition to make. So it, was there was there something that pushed you over the line? Like just so many clients were coming in, you were doing well, but drowning in them and you had to make a change? Or was there some other transition moment for you that just said, okay, I want to do this? Well, I think it was literally a no choice that we were either going to say we're not taking any more clients or we had to hire somebody. We really sort of took off right out of the box. I mean, we were growing at you know, 30 to 55% very first year and it never stopped. And so I, I still see a ton of clients. And I think that that makes us very different here than I think any major RIA that I'm aware of, you know, 5 billion, 10 billion and up, I still see a, tr- a huge number of clients personally. And I'm, I love doing that. You know, if you made me choose between owning the firm and, and seeing clients, I would choose seeing clients. So I really get a lot of satisfaction out of that, helping somebody get into a better spot. And I try to hire people that aren't really just in it for the money that also get satisfaction trying to put somebody in a, in a better spot, more of a consultative person than a, than a salesperson. But for me, it wasn't about moving clients. I had, there were hundreds of people coming and I just, it was impossible to do it. So I had to hire somebody. And if I was going to hire somebody, I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to be embarrassed that, that I was, I wanted to have the, if something went wrong, I didn't want it to be because I didn't spend the money or do my best to find the very, very best person. I, I wanted to find the best people. And so how are you finding your your people at, at this point? Like I get it when it was you and you go out and you meet some people who do good stuff and you say, hey, I'm excited to work with you and you and you try to attract them in. But you guys are now hundreds of employees. So I'm, I'm going to presume you you don't you know personally lead the search on every single employee or you just do that full time. How did you guys get to the point where you can systematize or institutionalize? We want to find great people. Again, I feel like that's one of those things we all say we want to find great people for growing businesses, but then some manage to do that and others don't. Right. In the beginning, it was very easy. I mean, I I knew a lot of advisors because I had made my living supporting other advisors. Then we hit a point where we were maybe 3 billion to 10 billion where it was just chaos. I didn't really know how to weed out talent and I didn't really know how to find the talent. I made a lot of mistakes. But what happened once we got larger is people really started coming to us. So every day we get, you know, many resumes and we go through a screening process. Somebody who will review it, then it will go to a department head, then they'll meet somebody. Once all that's done, I will meet every single person before we extend an offer. So part of my day 
every single day is to meet the people the firm wants to extend offers to. This morning, I had seven people. That's more than normal. In an average day, it's one or two. But I had seven people I met that were in the final phase of being hired here. So now it's actually easier because we have a lot of talent coming to us because they see the safety, right? No, they A lot of people want to leave the world that they're in and go to a firm that's an independent firm where they can do just what they want to do. They don't have to sell. They can just do planning or they can just do tax or law or wealth or whatever. But they're worried about going to a firm and getting fired in the first recession, right? And so I think there's a safety in our size that's attracting a lot of very talented people that's just very different than it was a few years ago. So it's become much, much easier to hire good people today than it, than it used to be. So I'm fascinated that you you still meet with every single person you're extending an offer to. Well, what does that look like? Is it just a, I mean, there's a lot of people. So they, they just, they come through your office and you just spend 10 or 15 minutes with them just trying to get a feel for what are they like and are they a good fit or... Do you have like like the three magic questions you ask them that they have to like answer or they're or they're going to get flagged? Right. Well, I would say, <laughs> I think that if you think, Michael, if when you meet somebody, how long does it take you to figure out if you like them? I mean, it right it doesn't yeah, take like a, a minute or two. Like you yeah. either connect or you don't. Usually that's that's that. So before they get to me, they've got the right credentials. They've had a background check. We've had the compliance check. We've we've had them meet do phone interviews. They've met their department head. All of that is done. I'm not figuring out, do you have a clean background? Do you have the credentials? Do you know what you're doing? That, that's done. I'm just figuring out, can my mom and dad be in front of this person? You know, can my brothers be in front of this person? When they're, this person's walking up and down the halls, are the colleagues going to go, I'm proud to call this person a colleague? That's all I'm trying to figure out. I'm not trying to figure out all that other stuff that I, other people can figure all of that stuff out. And I really just want to know, are they energetic and are they consultative and are they likable? And I'm looking for those traits. I'm not looking for qualifications. The qualifications have been handled already. So have you had people that went all the way, all the way through that vetting process, all those stages, they're meeting with you because by definition, they're in the final stage of getting an offer and you, and you just flagged them like, oh yeah, sorry, sorry, talk to them. This just isn't happening. At least a third. Yeah, no, that happens all the time. At least a third. That's a big number. There's a big, big number. Yeah. You know, sometimes people that are hiring on teams here, they're, we're short of people and they might get a little more aggressive about trying to hire. And I would rather be short than compromise. And so, yeah, no, I th- it happens all the time. It happened this week a couple of times. And that's basically like it's just a it's a culture check, like a personality culture check for you. How would you describe it? You know, I interviewed somebody for a city in the, in the South where we, we had an opening and the person it's a clean compliance record, nothing bad in the background check, certified financial planner, only had two employers, knew was a subject matter expert. But just, you know, when I met him, I just said, you know what? I don't see this person had a tinge of arrogance to me. And, you know, when I think of that, I, th- I think of my dad telling me about my dad's an immigrant and my mom is. And I remember him telling me how frustrated he was. You know, he's a doctor, he didn't know anything about money and he's an immigrant. And he would go to his lawyer and his CPA and his planner and how he didn't understand anything anybody was saying. And they talked down to him. And I think of that, you know, and so mm. if I can, if I even see a tinge of that, I'm not interested. It just doesn't really fit the culture. And so the person might be amazing and I'm sure going to be successful somewhere else. I don't like that kind of edge. 
And so that, that's an example of one of many things. You know, that might, that's not the, the main thing, but it, it's just something that happened very recently. I can't just put them through a screening thing and have them check a bunch of boxes. There's got to be right. something else there. So can you tell me what a typical week looks like for you? I mean, I'm just imagining like it's you got to end up leading a fairly structured world if you're managing this this company. You know, I know you like you you keep investment duties, you have management duties, you're keeping clients, you're meeting with every prospective employee you're hiring and you have hundreds of them and you're growing fast, you're hiring a lot. Like what does a typical week look like for you? Well, I, you know, it's interesting because I'm not really big on management. I mean, no one would ever accuse me of being a micromanager. And I, I like Henry, what Henry Ford said about that layers of management is where mediocrity hides. And I, I don't, I'm, I don't like management. So all, even the people that are directors in our firm that lead teams are hands on. So for what I mean by that is our head of trading is still trading. Our head of client service is actually doing some client service. I want everybody to be sharp and in tune with what's going on. And I'm very much the same way. So when I write a newsletter for clients, what they want to hear about isn't coming to me in some ivory tower two weeks too late. I'm sitting with clients every day. So I would say my typical week, one day a week, I'm traveling. I go somewhere and I try to see a client or a prospective client and our local advisors and all of that. So that, that would be normal one day a week to do that. I interview a couple people every day, but those are very, very short. I probably spend 70% of my week in front of clients actually doing planning. 70% of the week is still in front of clients doing the planning work. Yeah. If I had to break it out, it's 70% meeting existing clients or prospective clients. It's maybe it's 80 or 90% actually. 80 or 90% meeting clients and prospective clients, maybe 5% interviewing and 10 or 15% talking to our team, you know, one way or another. But I'm not going to conferences. I'm not running workshops. There's no management meeting. We're not doing doing any of that. So it's just not the way I believe in 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 running things. And so, no, I'm I'm an advisor, and I'm hiring people that are talented that don't need to be babysat. And there's a way to tell if they're delivering or not. And they delivered. If they don't deliver, we get them. They're not here very long. I was at a conference recently, actually, that Michael, it's the one I saw you at, and it was the only one I went to the whole year. And I went to one session and it was two guys that owned 10 billion plus RAs. And somebody said, well, you know, when you have to let somebody go, you know, what's it like? And the guy said, nobody's ever left. And he said the name of his firm. So the moderator asked the other guy who's very high profile, you know, 10 billion plus RA. And he said, no one's ever left our firm either. I just thought, wow, that's interesting. I mean, can you imagine a professional baseball team where you never cut anybody? You're not going to win very long, right? I mean, so to me, to me, you either deliver on what we thought, you're either somebody that I don't need to micromanage and you can get everything done, you can do everything we expect you to be. And you can, if that's the case, there's, I don't think there's a firm in the country anyone can grow more than creative planning. But if that's not the case, you're just not going to be here. It's just not the place for that person. And so I'm not managing them, I'm not babysitting them, I'm not talking to them every week. It's just a high performance place and, and I'm looking to them to all achieve on their own. So is there a particular way that you just track to keep to keep track of who who is delivering or or not? Are are you like a 
a firm with a whole bunch of automated dashboards that just feed all this information so you can keep track of who's hitting their numbers or producing the results that you're expecting? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you know they're doing the things that you were hoping or expecting they were going to do? Well, we don't do any stack rankings and we don't do any sharing of that information with people. We don't do resetting every January one. You have to do ABC. I think that's kind of disrespectful to an employee in a way. What I do, I have information. So I know, you know, that the advisor in whatever state is getting X number of referrals per client he has per year versus somebody else's is not. And then I know when I'm talking to them, I've got some substantive information about what's going on. But I got to tell you, even that's new. You know, but it was, it used to just be, I kind of knew, you know, obviously as we get bigger, we, we've now full time have somebody just getting this information together because we want to empower them too. I mean, basically the wealth managers came to me and said, hey, we love that we don't have these goals that we have to hit every January. We love that we're not stank right, but I'd like to know what the hell's going on. You know, I'd like to know how I'm doing. And so we, we are letting them know how they're doing. And at the same time, I have that information. But if somebody's not succeeding, if they're not getting referrals from clients, if they're not retaining clients, if they're not getting referrals from platforms that they're, they're working, we, we know that. And then we try to help them succeed there. Or, you know, creative's not just not the place because, you know, 95% of the people here are doing that. And I, I remember a long time ago, I used to be extremely patient with underperformers and I, I non-confrontational by nature. I don't like confrontation. And I, I would keep people who are underperforming on and on and on and on. And one advisor, it really changed the way I look at things. He said, you know, when you do that, you're not really helping that person. You're hurting all of us. And I you know, never really thought about it that way. I'm really transferring work. I'm creating reputational damage. And ever since then, I've been the whole other way. You know what I mean? Like if there's a problem, I'm going to help you get better or I'm going to help you exit. I'll, I'll help you find a better opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> or, or put it that way. So is there anything that's surprised you on the journey of like what the, what the job has turned out to be now compared to what you were expecting in the past as you were projecting forward? I think what I've been surprised about, I mean, like I didn't understand, you know, if you look at what's happening in the industry with all these conglomerates, I mean, I wasn't expect. I mean, I wasn't really expecting anything. I mean, I wasn't expecting, we were passive from the beginning. I think we, I think we still are the largest holder of ETFs of any RIA in the country, but I didn't know it was going to be this big of a movement towards that. I didn't realize there would be this many big RIAs and this many consolidators or that you'd see this much capital attracted to the place or that you'd see this big of a move from brokers to independence. I mean, I've been surprised by all of these things. And to me, it's just when, when something's different, it's just, we stop doing the same thing and we do something different. And I just try to focus on the client and say, in today's world and in tomorrow's world, how do I give that client more here than they can get anywhere else? And as if I can go to bed at night with that. I know we're going to be in a good spot, no matter how the industry changes uh, rather than being reactionary. So what about from the the management end of you know, trying to manage this growing business, these now hundreds of employees still trying to spend the majority of your time in front of prospects and clients? Like how does that shape you from a management end? Like how do you how do you manage and keep track of all of that? Well, I think it's I mean, first of all, I love it. So you kinda have to start with that. I remember reading an interview and I can't remember if it was Kobe or Michael Jordan, they said, well, what do you do after practice? And they said, we shoot baskets. I shoot baskets. You know, I, this is what I like doing. So I'm never going, oh, no, I've got to talk to my team. I love talking to my team. I never go, oh, no, another client meeting. I love talking to clients. What I don't like 
is management and meetings and all of that crap. And so I'm, not, I'm just not going to do those things because I don't think they add a lot of value. I, I might spend less time with a person here than they might get if I had a dedicated manager for them. But when they're talking to me, they know I care about what we're doing for the client. They know I'm aware of what's going on and they know I know what the client wants. I mean, so when I'm talking to a wealth manager, there's a little bit of credibility that comes from having done it. You know what I mean? So that they know I'm in the trenches with them and I'd much rather be a, a player coach than a manager. And so I think, you know, I might only talk to a certain wealth manager accumulatively an hour or two a year, but I think that they, during that hour, they know whatever we're talking about. You know, I'm sure they all roll their eyes on occasion, but for the most part, I think they go, you know what, I probably what Peter's telling me is good guidance for how I can get better at what I'm doing or how I can be more successful. So where does the, where does the firm go for you guys from here? Like, are you, uh. You're going to be the, the, the first independent RA that crosses the $50 billion line or the $100 billion line is, is a, just powering forward on, on growth and trying to keep the compounding? I could care less about that component of it. To me, that's a reflection of where the money's going. I really want to feel like we're doing the best for the clients. And so ultimately, I'm focused on value, 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 and the rest takes care of itself. I can't tell where we're going because I don't know what's going to happen with, for sure, with the competitive environment. I don't know what's going to happen with all my competitors that are owned by parent companies. I don't know if what's going to happen with the fiduciary rule. I mean, all these things are seismic. You know, these are massive shifts that can happen in the coming years. All I know is that when we have a dollar to invest, we we, we invest it in having a better offering, better people, and better processes. And, and to me, if you do those things, then you can survive. You know, whatever's whatever's coming, because I do think there will be a, a reckoning in the industry. And I think, I think there are a lot of firms that will survive it and a lot that won't. I think it's an interesting framing that I know there are a lot of firms that are concerned about the competitive threats. They're concerned about whether it's robo-advisors or custodians competing in the business or, or you know, the rise of large firms like, like yours that, that they feel are competing against them. You know, we all have competitive threats coming from someplace that's the gloriousness of, of capitalism. You know, I'm 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 struck though by this philosophy of yours of just I'm just going to stay focused on the value of the client, so we have a good relationship, and we'll we'll figure out the rest as we go. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's the philosophy is is just what else can I give the client? You know, what else can we do for the client, and how low how low the cost can we do it for? I think you're right about these competitors. It makes me think of like say these robo offerings that are out there, and everyone's oh the robos they don't hurt advisors. Well, that's a bunch of BS. Of course they do. The advisors don't feel it because the market's gone up a lot in the last five years. And so if you're an RIA that was a $2 billion, you're at $3 billion, you're going, well, the robo didn't hurt me. Well, if you take out the market and you start to look at really how much new clients are coming, how many of those clients would have come to you that instead said, you know what, you're not, I, I'd be better off going to a robo. All of these things are taking pieces of the pie and anybody that thinks that they, they aren't is delusional. So I, and I, I just, I think that's what the next bear market's going to reveal. And I think the industry has gotten very fat. I think you look at like these firms with their layers and layers of management, and I just don't see it as sustainable in a prolonged bear market. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I hear you that there's competition coming in from, and from a lot of directions, but in particular in areas like looking at robo-advisors, I mean, just when I look at, at, at raw numbers, like, 
I'm pretty sure you've grown over the past six years by more than like Betterment, Wealthfront, and all the other robo-advisors combined. We have. And I obviously, I follow you, Michael, and I know you don't think the robos are, are a threat, but that doesn't mean that some of that business wasn't going to come to creative. And I do sit down with people who go, I'm considering you and Goldman Sachs, maybe a true story. So I was referred to a client that was in Delaware at $172 million. The dad had passed. And they were choosing between creative planning, Goldman Sachs, and Vanguard. That, to me, is the world we're in now. Throwing it in a robo at Vanguard versus all of the proprietary stuff at Goldman Sachs versus creative. I think that that's not a, a matchup that was going to happen a few years ago. And so these things, sometimes we get a, a chance at the table and sometimes people go, you know what, it's, I'm just going to go there. And so I think that I do think that robos aren't eliminating advisors, but they are taking a significant piece of the, of the pie. Yeah. Well, and, and I would agree with respect to competitive threats like, like Vanguard, you know, I, I don't view them as a, as a robo, they've, they've got something like 600 CFPs that they've hired in just two or three years. Like they're a, they're a massive human planner service. Granted, they don't have branch locations, so they, they meet with their clients virtually, but you know, about a third of our clients aren't in the DC area. We meet with them virtually as well. Like I don't, I don't think of Pinnacle as a robo advisor because we've got hundreds of clients that we meet with using Skype and go to meeting. Vanguard just does the same thing at a, at a much, much larger size and scale than, but not, than we but do. Nonetheless, it's an example of the landscape. I mean, the custodians, like we said, are, are going to start to compete even more. The brokerage houses are going to come around. They're not stupid. And the, some, the robos are taking some and places like Vanguard are. So I think that you, the marketplace, this is not what, what the advisory world looked like five years ago. And I think it'll look radically dr- different in another five as well. Yeah. Well, it's the irony, right? You know, the, the, the more the, we all cheered when brokerage and custodial services got cheaper and we all cheered when you know, funds and ETFs got cheaper driven by large custodians with scale and, and, and companies like Vanguard. But, you know, the caveat from their end is they're watching their margins go to zero because of this hyper competitive commoditized environment and trying to figure out like, so where in the vice value, like where in the value chain, can we actually make more margins? Oh, instead of giving all this money to advisors, why don't we become advisors? And then we can participate in their margins, which, which is now what's happening. Exactly. Exactly. We seem to think we're immune to something that has happened in every other industry. And that happens in a capitalist society. If, If you look at financial services, you saw mutual fund fees go, first the commissions went away, then the high fees went away, then you saw it go to ETFs, now ETFs. Vanguard's one of the more expensive ETF platforms as that's gone almost to zero. Custodian trading fees have gone down. So every single thing has come down and the advisor fee is going to follow. For which your view is just, we're just going to try to stay focused on doing whatever we can to give value to the client and we'll deal with it as we go. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and to implement technology so we can, we can be ahead of that so we can maintain a margin even in a lower fee environment. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And and one of the things that always comes up on, on the podcast is that just the, the word success means very different things to different people, sometimes different things to us in, in different stages of our own lives. So, you know, as someone who's built what anyone would objectively call a phenomenally successful RIA business, I'm I'm curious just for you at your at at the personal level, like how do you how does Peter Malouk define success? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've seen, obviously, I'm, one of the interesting parts of my job is I'm sitting with some enormously successful people now. And it is one of the funnest things is just to see this American dream over and over and over again, how every, everyone's story, it is an amazing country we live in. You really get to see that in this profession, like the people really can do amazing things and largely because of skill and sometimes because of a tremendous amount of luck. And in the case of someone like me, you know, a lot of the latter and some of the, some of the former, a, co a combination of the, of the two. And I've also learned that money doesn't really change anybody. It just reveals who they really are too. So I had a much yeah. more interesting perspective on, on, you know, watching what money does to people and, and, and their relationship with money. But for me, success is, you know, if I can, if I can come to work and I can really sit with a client and feel like they're in a better spot because they chose creative, they could have gone to this company or that company, but they came here and I can feel good that they're in a better spot because they came here. That brings me tremendous satisfaction. And the other thing that, that I love is watching somebody fulfill their potential. We have so many people here on our team that they were great where they were, but they could have never become or never in the future couldn't become what they could at creative. And that to me is the definition of success that I get to be in a position to empower other people. And at the same time, I'm having financial success. And of course, I can use that money to do all kinds of good things from support family to support the community. And so this is the greatest profession I think someone can be in at this very moment. And I've been very fortunate to be a part of it. All your listeners are very fortunate to be a part of it. I, I think we'll look back and this is the, the golden era for this. And I'm grateful to be a part of it. So I love everything I'm doing all the time because of that. Well, amen. Well, thank you for joining us and, and sharing some of that passion. I'm, I'm, I'm very cognizant of what a busy guy you are. So I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful we could have you to join us on the podcast here and just share some of this story and perspective of, of what it's like to build creative. I appreciate that, Mike. And I appreciate all you do for the advisor community example of bringing substance to it, which is, which is great. Oh, my pleasure. We're, we're doing what we can. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.